Welcome to the Waste Not What Not podcast. I'm Philippa Ross, human ecologist, enthusiologist, author and energy healer, bringing you inspirational interviews, news and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet the way nature intended by revitalizing our natural resources, minimizing waste and maximizing human potential. I trust you discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle in order for us to collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured. You'll find all the show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at philipparos.com. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Hello, Wastebusters. Welcome to November's edition of the Waste Not Want Not podcast. An episode packed with over a century's worth of wisdom with my nearly 103-year-old guest, Dr Gladys McGarry. My favourite quote of all times, and one that underpins everything I do, is, to be yourself in a world that's constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. The words capture the core of my guest's message. Dr Gladys knows only too well how to juggle chaos, conflict and confusion to accomplish what she knows in her heart is right for her. She's an authentic trailblazer who took the advice from her father to never give up. Advice she continues to share with others so when they see an injustice they fight for it and research it to prove the efficacy of their beliefs. Among her other accolades, Dr Gladys is a mother of six grandmother to 10, great-grandmother to 13 and great-great-grandmother to 1. She's also affectionately known as the mother of holistic medicine. Co-founding the American Holistic Medical Association in 1978 as well as being an active advocate for natural birthing. Today her tenacious heart-centered approach to health has proved the efficacy of her own beliefs. Her pioneering approach to creating a physician-patient partnership has transformed the focus of medicine from disease where the patient feels powerless to one of health and healing, empowering the individual to choose what they deem is best for them to feel happy, healthy and whole. Dr Gladys is a delightful earth angel who draws on decades of personal and professional experiences. She's traversed the peaks and troughs of life, so she's exceptionally well-placed to share her prescription for how we can live a well-lived life at any age. There's no way an hour's conversation can possibly capture the wealth of her knowledge, but the deep and diverse topics we touch on will leave you in no doubt about the power that lies within you and how, when you form a trusting partnership with yourself, the only person who really knows will help you come home to your true self. I had the most amazing, juicy, fun, feisty and very effervescent woman joining me today. And she's a true testament to a book she's written entitled A Well-Lived Life, Six Secrets to Health and Happiness at Every Age. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gladys McGarry. How are you? And welcome to the future in New Zealand. Yes, thank you. I'm so happy to talk to you because there was a family from New Zealand, the Riddle family. My parents were best friends. The Riddles and Taylor's kids grew up together. And Tom Riddle, the dad, and my dad were really good friends. 
when Sadhu Sundar Singh disappeared in the high Himalayas, 1925 or something like that, my dad and Tom went to try to find him. Sadhu Sundar Singh was this amazing Indian man who became a Christian. He decided that he was going to not give up all of his Indian habits, and he became a sadhu, and he traveled around India. But he traveled all around the world spreading his message and was very well known. Tom Riddle wrote a book about trying to find him. They never found him. Wow. It's one of those mystery stories that families carry. Well, you know, Mrs. Riddle and my mother set up a Tuesday afternoon tea party at Kellogg Church for the Tommy's wives in northern India because when their children got to be school age, they sent them home. And these women there were there with nothing to do. Really, it was a hard time for them. So they had card games and so on. We didn't have movies, but they'd get somebody to come and speak or they'd set up a lantern lecture that they could do. And my sister and I would help take care of the little kids after we got through from school. And so the descendants are here in New Zealand now, are they? Oh, yes, they're there. They're, they're a family of riddles. I'm in touch with them to tell them that we're connecting. <laughs> it's an amazing small world. <laughs> it is fantastic, isn't it? You know, with hundreds, almost three years, there's so many stories. That's a living process because that family and this family are still connected. It's a cycle right. of life, isn't it? It's beautiful. I just love your energy. And then you've done so many interviews and you're regularly on Instagram every week with Dr. Katie. And they are just such juicy conversations that you two have, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> I read your book. I got it from the library and I had to wait half an hour before I was meeting somebody. And I started reading it in the car. And I was fizzing with excitement because the way you've written it is just so digestible. And the beauty of the six secrets that you have, they're intangible and immeasurable, but they're so necessary. And you really breathe life into them, make them digestible. It's so pertinent because for me, one of the big things in my role in life as a mentor and encouraging people to have reverence for all life, people and the planet is personal sovereignty. And you're not prescribing anything with your secrets to life. You're actually providing a fantastic perspective on life. What was your intent when you set out to write this book? Well, see, I've been writing medical books for years about the work that I've done in medicine and so on, and my take about healing, which is different from the conventional thoughts. You know, we started the American Holistic Medical Association, all of that stuff. So I've been doing that for years. But the juice of what that was all about is what this book is about. It's not about the medical corrections that we can make mm -hmm. in our process is finding out who we are as individuals. And as we do that, 
we find out that this whole world is a huge jigsaw puzzle and every one of us is a piece in that jigsaw puzzle and there isn't anyone else who fits in that. It's something that we really need to accept as a reality that things that happen to us are happening to us because we are me, you know? It's the whole process of who I am and that everything that happens is a teacher. My second son, who's a retired Presbyterian minister, he's been helping me with these podcasts and everything. He's helping with everything in my life. The other day, he was bringing groceries in from the store. Mm -hmm. And as he went to step into his car, he looked down on the ground and saw this little puzzle piece. And it's a perfect puzzle piece. But he saw it. It's recognizing these aspects of ourselves at each moment that's there. And there, that's me. You know, he saw himself in that puzzle piece and picked it up. And we have it now here as a relic or I don't know. It's certainly a teacher to us. Very symbolic, isn't it? And a great metaphor for tapping into the value that each and every one of us have. Because the other beauty of your book and the the, uh, foundation of your work is for us to recognize that value in ourselves. Because we've been put in a place of fear because we don't measure up to a certain prescription of what we should be. And the beauty of the message that you're conveying is to look within the wisdom that you hold within yourself, because each and every one of us has that nugget of gold and are a valuable piece of the puzzle to create the holistic picture. And that's so important, isn't it? Yes, and and not to put a time element on it. I didn't find out about my voice until I was 93. I mean, I'd been writing books and doing lectures and all of that, but always there was this niggling thing in the back of my mind. Are you sure? You know, get someone else to check it. It was that kind of a self-doubt. I had a dream, and the dream was that I woke up laughing and singing. And when I finally woke up more, what I saw was that I was a nine-year-old Gladys in the jungles of North India. And it was a Sunday morning. And I knew in the dream it was a Sunday morning and it was a Sunday morning here. And the thing was that in our family, we were not supposed to sing anything but hymns or bhajans on Sunday mornings. And as a nine-year-old wise kid, <laughs> I thought I knew some things, and uh, so I didn't. I didn't like that rule, and so I saw myself peeking out of the tent flap to make sure my brother wasn't around because he'd tattle on me, and so he wasn't there. So I ran as fast as I could, climbed the tree, got clear to the top, and I'm sitting up there and I'm singing. I mean, I'm singing. Any old thing that comes into my head, the caterpillar saw and all, whatever. But every so often, I look over my shoulder, and Jesus is up in the tree in, with me. And I say to him, Jesus loves the little children, right? And he's he's laughing. He's really laughing. 
And he says, yes. So I go back to my singing and I'm singing. But then, you know, this old niggly thing that says, are you sure? Says, are you sure? He said it was okay. So I go back and I say, I'm still a little children, right? And he's really laughing now. And he says, yes. And I woke up. And when I did that, I thought, if Jesus tells you your voice and the things that you're saying are all right and are to be heard, then you better start believing it too. So it was that, but it took me that long because of the damage that I had to my own idea of who I had and how important my voice was. I knew I had this message to give. And I wanted other people to accept it because I knew it was true. Mm. But maybe, maybe, you know, that that niggly little, what if it's not kind of thing. But the juice of that whole process is what this book is about. The juice is about the energy that comes up. And I'll just tell you about my link to Antarctica because my great, great, great grandfather discovered the North Magnetic Pole and then he went south to find that and he discovered the Ross Sea region. I was privileged to go there eight years ago and I have a great affiliation with penguins. I'm obsessed with them now and they mirror... my personality which is playful and resourcefulness it made me watch the movie happy feet happy feet is mumbles this character who is cast out because he can't sing like the rest of the colony and he says don't make me change and the message is about the importance of being who you are and doing what makes your heart sing and i guess getting Uh this is going There was so much of your book and your message that you're portraying that really, really resonates with me and how important that is. And you mentioned laughter. Now, that is one of the best medicines going and a great way to keep things on an even keel, isn't it? Oh, my mother taught me that. I don't know what I would have done with the lessons that my mother taught me. (laughs) When I was in third grade, my teacher, Miss McGee, appointed me class governor because a teacher before me for for two years called me the class dummy because I have this thing called dyslexia, but we didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And so I was the class dummy and the kids picked on me and all of this kind of stuff. For two years, my voice and what I thought and so on was really pounded down. But when I got into third grade, Miss McGee saw something and she appointed me class governor. So as class governor, I was able to take the message of our class, third standard, to the student body. So that made me know that my voice at that point was important. We had a play that was called The Frog Jumps Over the Pond. And my mother made me a a suit and dyed it green and I walked out on the stage feeling very confident that I knew just what I had to do because I had been kept back in first grade. And so I was taller than the other kids. So I could jump over the pond. So I walk in very sure of myself if I step onto the stage. But as I look into the audience, my two older brothers are in the front row of the audience. 
And it just throws me off my step enough that when I jump over the pond, I land in it, not over it. Wow. And so I'm standing in that pond with my suit is fading because my mother had died that she had used. And I'm crying. I'm devastated. I'm broken. In my mind, I'm just awful. I couldn't move. The teacher finally had to come over and take me off the stage. But the audience was convulsed with laughter. I mean, they were laughing so hard. They were just all bubbled up with laughter. So at dinner that night, my brothers were telling the family about what had happened. And they were just laughing and laughing. Of course, I was trying to give them the eye and they weren't paying any attention to me. Finally, my mother says, all right, boys, you've had your fun. Now, what can we do as a family so that if this ever happens to Gladdy again, she'll have the audience laughing with her, not at her. Mm-hmm. Now, taking that statement was pivotal to my life because dyslexia is not just the number of figures and all moving on, but it makes us a little bit awkward, a little bit not quite centered. And so I've fallen, as I've walked onto a stage numberless times, but I always have something to say, like, oh, I'm such a drama queen, or, or something that I have the audience in my hand before I ever start talking. So importance of understanding that humor is the thing that can and very often is the thing that pulls us out of the stuck places that we could get. It's like, can I just freewheel here? Absolutely. Go for it. I love it. All right. I had just had my 99th birthday party. And so I came into the grocery store and I was still driving and I was taking the groceries out of my cart to put them into my car. And a nice elderly gentleman comes walking by and he says, oh, may I help you? And I said, no, no, I can do this. And he puffs himself up and stands in front of me and he says, well, I'm 86. (laughs) And I looked at him and I put my shoulders back and I said, well, I'm 99. (laughs) And I marched off and got into the car. And I thought, you nasty old lady. He was just trying to be nice, you know. Why did you do that? So I was sitting in my car thinking, you better go into that grocery store and apologize. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, I will. And then I realized, don't give it any more thought. He's going to have a great time going home and telling his wife that this nasty old lady said that to him. And and they'll have a story that'll make them laugh. And I started laughing because I could see this man and myself in the kindergarten in the sandbox, you know, trying to upstage each other. And I started laughing. I couldn't start my car. I was laughing. So I thought this is a real comedy scene, you know. This is these two old people coming at each other like that. It still makes me laugh. (laughs) Well, you you dropped in there something that's really pertinent about don't give it any more energy. And the podcast is all about 
making the most of our natural resources and not wasting energy like personal energy or environmental energy you could have spent and berated yourself for a long time and really affected your state of being and your emotions and things like that had you stayed in that place but your awareness and your ability to laugh it off and just get on with your day is such an important subtle message isn't it well it really is because if i'd gone in there and given more time and energy and thought and all of that we built a big thing out of something that really didn't matter to a hell of beans as my mother used to say oh kuch parwani and let it go it's, it's the understanding that you put your energy into what is important and that really wasn't important i think he learned something and i know i learned something mm. and and that brings me on to the point about the importance of focus in life to get what you want and not to have to focus on what hurts exactly. you know it's like if you cut your arm yeah and you have a scab there and you spend your time picking at that scab it's never going to heal but yeah. if you do the ointment or dress it the way it needs to it'll heal and maybe form a scar but all you'll have later on oh i remember you but it has no pain in it yeah you've taken care of the issue by dealing with what's there and you've lived through it see here i think that we have a kind of misconception when somebody's stuck in a place of pain and we it all happens to all of us at different times if we don't help that person by not adding to their pain by giving it more strength and so on then we're not helping them because it's like we're sitting there just picking at that scab and making it more hers after you once heal it it doesn't hurt anymore but the fact of the matter is you don't just get over stuff you have to understand that there's certain things in life you just plain have to live through and that's what my divorce was i was so broken after 46 years of marriage after all we'd done the whole pain was so bad i was totally broken and i was coming home to my home alone yelling i was in the car and i was screaming at the universe i said you just don't get what it's like to be here and you know and this is just so pain it's so you know and so on so on. so i was howling like a coyote i was just really really broken and all of a sudden i pulled over to the side of the road and stopped the car and i stopped my railing and the voice came to me this is the day the lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it and that be glad was my name and i thought oh okay <laughs> and so i went home and i changed my license plate so it read be glad so that every time i got into my car i saw that and it reminded me i kept that license plate until i retired from here but also all the time i was driving after that the people behind me were seeing it too 
So it wasn't just my message myself. It was my message as I drove through town. And I think if we accept the reality of what our actions really do for others as well as for ourselves, let alone what they do for our kids and our people in our village, you know, the whole thing. It's a really important message. It's palpable, isn't it? Again, it's one of those intangible things. You know when somebody walks into a room or you walk into a room and it feels really low or feels really high. I see every cell in our body as a little smiley face and it's an entire ecosystem in and of itself. And when we go out, it affects the ecosystem outside of us and be it a person or the environment. And so with your take on life, we have the sovereignty and the choice to affect our own healing by the choices we make and the attitude of mind by being glad and smiling can actually make a huge difference to every cell in our body, can't it? Absolutely. You know, this isn't a theology. It's just a thought that I have. And that is that God, whatever God means to each one of us, that's, that's our choice, created the earth and it was beautiful and everything was perfect creation. And then he created us, the human being. And he said to us, now here is this beautiful planet. You are the only living beings on this planet who have free will and choice. Mm. So I therefore give you dominion over the planet. And we, in our arrogance, thought that God was saying dominance. Mm. So we took over. Mm. And look at what we've done. Mm. What I'm finding as I'm talking to people who are working with me with this book, just like you, I think we're reaching for our true humanity. Like E.T., little E.T. wanting to go home. Well, I think those of us who are understanding this message are reaching for that because we want to be able to help that. We don't want to dominate. We want to have dominance and help because that's what the word means. Absolutely. And in that, it's about our connection and the way the world has been with that dominance. It has segregated people. And the, your own philosophy is like everybody's choice is different because of the perspective they come on. And there's no right or wrong. And it's also because we have a connection to ourselves and other people. And it's just like the fabric of life, isn't it? Everything's woven together and how important that is and the impact it has when we come together, which is the beauty of what you're creating is a global family of people who allow choice without judgment. Right, right. And, you know, I have these five L's that have helped me put some of this into words. It's so hard to try and explain things like love. Yeah. We spent 
hours trying to find the words to say what love is. And we don't have words for it because, you know, it's like if a man is born blind and you try to explain to him what the color green is, he's never experienced it. Mm. So he'll never know. Mm. If a person has never experienced love, they don't know what you're talking about. So I have these five L's. The first two are life and love, and they go together. Life needs love, and love needs life. They feed off of each other. It's like a a seed in the pyramid, which uh, has been there for 5,000 years, and nothing happened. All the energy of the universe is inside that cell until love in the form of water and air and caring softens that shell, and the seed can open up and become what it is. But the two of them work together. Life and love are integral parts of each other. Those two are important, but they're important together. The third one is laughter. Laughter without love is cruel. It's mean. It's cold. It well, tears families apart. And you causes wars. Said that, yeah. But laughter with love is joy and happiness. And transformation. Absolutely. Well, love is transformation on all of these levels. Laughter without love is drudgery. It's like, I got to go to work. There are too many diapers. This is too hard. But laughter with love is bliss. It's why you do what you do. It's why I do what I We do 50 times harder work and longer hours because we love it. We really understand this and that love energy that we put into it. And the fifth one is listening. Listening without love is empty sound. You can want to help somebody, but you're not putting any love energy into it. They won't understand it. They won't get what you're trying to say. But if you are loving that person or you're working with the whole process of love, it's understanding. It's like I have a wonderful colleague. He's a neurologist. I've known him for years. He's been working at the medical school with residents. And he told me about a month ago, he had an appointment with a resident to meet at a certain patient's door. and. Uh, to go in and, and work together. So when he got there, the resident was standing outside the door and he said, well, let's go on in. And she says, oh, we don't need to. And he says, wait a minute, what do you mean we don't need to? And she said, well, he has Alzheimer's. He won't understand anything we say. And my colleague said to her, now wait, do you understand that there are two patients in that room The one is a man who has Alzheimer's, okay, but his wife is there. And she's going to take what we're saying. And with love, she's going to be able to put that into context for him so that maybe he doesn't understand it, but he'll get it, you know. So they had that kind of conversation. And he said, and besides, we need to touch them. So it's that importance of understanding that maybe 
something doesn't make sense to us in our head, but our very cells and our very juice knows that it's coming to us in a loving way, and it's important. That goes back to your story about it affects everybody around our energy has and the intent behind it can have a profound effect. And it's not just touching physically, but it's touching the heart. That energy of love has a huge impact and connection. And we don't know because we've not experienced it. So, you know, we're presuming that the gentleman with Alzheimer's doesn't understand what is being portrayed to him with words, but he can feel the intent of the person and the attitude of the person and how included he is by the way we approach the whole thing. Right. You know, it's like uh, this wonderful friend of mine, James, uh, we've known him for years and he's just been a good family friend. And then uh, he moved into dementia, and we put him in a nice home, and he was being taken care of and so on. One day, I took a little plant to him, and I said, James, now this is your plant. And so he's just looking all around. I don't know what he's understanding. And, And I put it in his window, and I said, you can take care of it and give it water because it's going to need water. And I talked to him a little bit about the plant. And then that was it. And I left and I came back in a week to see how James was doing, because that's what I did. And he met me at the door and he said, come, come, come. And I went inside. He said, magic. And I said, what's magic? He said, look. And we go over to the box on the wall, which is the air conditioning box. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he says, look push this button, and this gets so nice and cool. And my plants love it. Ah. And then he says, you push this button because it's hot, and my plant doesn't like it. Now, I don't know how he understood that, Mm -hmm. but the life within that plant became important to him because he could do something about it. And he wasn't able to do something about other things anyway, but that he could see Mm. and feel. So you never know. I mean, to me, I wrote a whole article about that because to me, it was like, whoa, what a great lesson Mm. for us to understand that if we do something, some little unknown thing you know you don't know what it's going to do and that's not your business anyway you're doing it because you love the guy and you want to ha- him to have that little plant it's the ripple effect isn't it and actually seeing the difference that it can make leads me on to your love of um, stem cells and i remember hearing a story about the discovery of how some stem cells thrive because I'm an attendant who was in the laboratory who tended them with loving care. And just going back to our earlier conversation, how that love and intent is infused in whatever we handle. We just never know, like food. And so if we do it with like labor, as you were talking earlier, it has a huge impact. 
on things. And Dr. Emoto was talking about that with plants. And I have a friend, Vida Austin. She does work with water and crystallizes it as a conscious entity. It encapsulates and produces images that it holds, whether she plays it a song or presents a picture or an intent with words. It shows up in the crystallology of the water that she freezes. So we just never know, do we? Oh, you, you just don't know. And there are certain things that are part of our element that we live with, that if we don't pay attention to them, we don't know. My eyes are very poor right now because I can't see very much. But my insight has gotten better. So I begin to understand things that are really important. And I learn something every day. You know, there's more to learn. Yes, it's endless, isn't it? Yeah, that's life. It's life. You don't want to get stuck. As you say, it's moving on, not getting stuck in the drudgery of it. You notice it when people have one of their senses is slightly impaired. Their other senses are heightened, like you explained with your sight. The whole spectrum is phenomenal. To me, the higher we can keep our own energy up, the greater connection we have to the cosmic energy, the intelligent universe, which opens us up to more wisdom and insight. We need to fall in love with ourselves. My eldest son is a retired orthopedic surgeon. When he came through Phoenix, ready to start his practice in Del Rio, Texas, he said to me, Mom, I'm scared. I'm going into the world. I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. I don't know if I can handle that. And I said to him, well, Carl, if you think you're the one that's in charge of that, you have a right to be scared. But if you can understand that within that patient is your colleague, the physician within that patient is your colleague. When you have done this amazing work that you've been taught to do, And orthopedic surgery is a huge thing. If you've broken anything, it's a good thing to have a good orthopedic surgeon. But you do your job to the best of your ability with love, contacting the physician within that patient and letting that physician take over the healing process. You have nothing to be afraid of. Mm. And so now he's retired. He's had donkeys and llamas and has a a six-acre land that he takes care of and just going on with the things that that make him happy and make the world happy, make the world better. He has solar panels. He's continued the business of taking care of Mother Earth Mm. like he did when he took care of patients. It mirrors the lessons that you've taught in the book so far as our tendency to get other people to give them the answers. And what you're saying about your son as an orthopedic surgeon, it's not up to that other person to tell them what to do. It is a partnership and a coming together, connecting, working together and to take responsibility ourselves and tapping into the value and gifts that we have. So your son had the gift of being an orthopedic surgeon, while this other person had other gifts 
that he could bring and help heal to bring them together. It's just phenomenal. It's right. really hard having these conversations because I see everything is interconnected. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and it's so important that he do his job lovingly yeah. and do the best of his ability and let the physician within the patient know what that job is, you know. So I've done this, that, and the other thing, and here's how you take that that I've done and make it what needs to be done as as life goes on. Because if the patient doesn't pay any attention to what he has done and doesn't understand and can't take it from there, then there's a problem. Mm. But if they can understand what he has done and how he's reaching out to them to teach them what it is, and they take it and work with it, you've got a, a win. A win-win. It's the power within ourselves that comes to light, that, that wisdom that we actually tap into, isn't right. it? Yeah. There's a number of other things that you find passionate. And so I've done an interview with an 11-year-old, and you're my eldest guest. And uh-huh. it really highlights to me that what we do in society, we dismiss both ends of the spectrum, the young and the old, because the young Absolutely. don't know enough and the old, they're on the scrap heap now. But the wisdom at either end is just phenomenal, isn't it? You know, my children taught me so much as they were growing up. My son, who is my helper here, when he was seven, he came in to the house and he says, Mama, I wish Jesus was here. And I said, well, I do too, but why you? He says, because I've got questions. And I said, well, you know, ask me. Maybe I can help you. He says, you don't have the answers. <laughs> and I said, well, try me. So he says, okay, how can God be if he never got started? And I said, oh. <laughs> That's you profound. Know, and I said, well, maybe it's sort of like a circle. It doesn't have a beginning or an end. He says, I knew you didn't have the answers. And he goes yeah. off. But at seven, he was knowing that. Mm-hmm. And my next son uh, came in when he was three. And he says, Mama, I know something. And I says, what is it, Bobby? He says, if I make a friend and he makes a friend and he makes a friend, it's going to go all around the world and come back to me. Of course, he's a psychologist. Mm. He has the Human Potential Center in Austin, Texas, and this is what he does. And so, you know, when we listen to what the children are saying, it's awesome. It provides a really fresh perspective, doesn't it? Uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she was a good friend of mine, and she did the work on death and dying. Her idea was that if we had places where older folks could live next door to a kindergarten, this would be a good thing. You had another question that you wanted to get I was also talking about the old being dismissed and throughout your life, being a woman for a start and having a what might be deemed as woo-woo attitude to things and then being older. Your fun, feisty attitude has really helped you get through, and it's for society to see the wisdom. I've just turned 62, and the realization is like the more you 
know, the more you realize you don't know. And the wisdom that you, comes from that insight that you were talking about yeah. should not be yeah. dismissed. It's gold, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a treasure trove. It, and, and the fact of the matter is that you've been storing it for a long time. And, you know, these are things that are really great memories and songs and, and part of who and what you are. And when you understand that and can still call it up and work with it, I call it going down memory lane. You know, if I'm awake at night and worrying about the fact that I'm not going to sleep and so on, I won't sleep, you mm -hmm. know, because I'm putting all attention on not sleeping. But if I understand, okay, so you, you're not sleeping right now. Yeah, but remember when? And I start down memory lane, first thing you know, I'm asleep. Mm. And because I don't choose most of the time to call up the painful memories, not yep. at that time of the night. Mm -hmm. I, I choose to call up the memories that make my heart sing, not the ones that were really damaging and hurtful and so on. I could do that, and I, I've done it, but uh, it didn't get me any. Well, it did. It got me to understand that. It, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> but it's also uh, those hard knocks in life are treasure in um, themselves when we look at oh, them yeah. from a different perspective, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Frog jumped over the pond. Exactly. Going right back to the beginning. So as we near the end of the interview, it's a very hard question for you at 102, but has there been a book and or a person that has really influenced your life? Oh, uh, so many people, but uh, the Edgar Casey work has been very important. But the concept of a village for living medicine is a thing that I really want to have happen. Every time a person steps on the property of a village for living medicine, the healing starts because everything that is done there is done with love. And the people who are living there, but that first ingredient of what it is that they're living for and with. And it can happen any place in the world. As my book and these words are getting around the world, we're finding that there are places around this world where people have been doing that. Yeah. And they're thinking about and they're creating it. And it's the Garden of Eden or it's the Shangri-La or it's something that is really what Mother Earth loves and wants to have us continue to do. And when we love it, it's bliss. You're creating a global family, but we can start with ourselves by having that relationship with ourselves, and then it can be our immediate family, and then it can be our right. local community, and then nationally, and then internationally. And that's one of the things that... I encourage people to do every small action we take has an impact not only on ourselves, but that ripple effect worldwide, really. And you're doing it. It may be a great desire of yours, but it's happening. I it is like, happening. It is. And I'd love to take this opportunity to honour you for 
the beautiful way that you are going about this work, your energy, enthusiasm. As I said at the beginning, you are a testament to the book that you have written. I'm tearing up here. A testament to the book you've written because it's so profound, but it's so simple. It need not be complicated, need it? No, it's life itself. Wish you an advanced, happy 103rd birthday at the end of the month in November. I'd love to be with you, but I will be with you in spirit and send you lots of love. And I'm sure you'll do something. Have you got any great plans or are they top secret? Well, we want to have something later on when we can do something. I don't know. It'll come together when the world says it's coconut time. When the coconut is ripe, it'll drop. That's a good lesson to end with. It's like you don't need to force things. It all happens in divine timing and nature knows best. Absolutely. Thank Thank you. you. Thank Thank you. 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 It's been an absolute delight. Thank you. It has. Yes. And I'm so happy to connect with the Riddle family. (laughs) I know that this connection is a deep family connection. So it's so nice to be able to find it in New Zealand. Thank you. God bless you. (laughs) (laughs) Much love. You too. Who wouldn't want to have a doctor like Gladys, who has such reverence for life and honours the choice we make for ourselves? I cannot recommend her book highly enough. It goes into greater depth about the six secrets to health and happiness, your juice and how to get it flowing, The process of life, love, lessons life deals us, universal connections and how to live life larger than life itself. See if your local library has a copy and if not you can order one through her website, the link for which is in the show notes. Next month I'm talking to Angela Tierney who intuitively tapped into the wisdom of her own inner physician to help her heal from cancer. Make sure you follow or subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. All feedback and reviews are much appreciated, as are your ideas for a subject or guests you'd like me to consider. Just email me on info at philiparos.com. Until then, take care of yourselves. Open your heart and allow the juices to flow. Open your mind to a world of possibilities and live a well-lived life by minimizing waste and maximizing your own potential.